You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, guys. You got a squeaky chair over there. Real squeaky. I don't think the microphone will pick it up. We need some WD-40 in here. Is this our last episode for the year? No, we actually have two more. Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) You're done, though. So, you know, you can just celebrate that (laughs) if you want. (laughs) See you guys. Yeah. All right, without Evan, uh, Max, who did you talk to? I talked to Jason Vigoni. I was really excited to talk to Jason Magoni. He writes for Wired, and he writes for Philadelphia Magazine. Uh, he just came out with this book called Ingenious, which I really liked. Uh, and he also, fun fact, wrote one of the first stories ever recommended on longform.org. That's, I love that story. What, what story was that? It's this. It was the GQ story. Yeah, GQ it's story the... about Marvin Harrison, ex-football player, possibly murderer. Quite possibly murderer. That story is fucking nuts. Jason Vigoni, I will just say to his credit among many things to his credit, has been a longtime supporter of Longform, and we appreciate it. Uh, you can do the same kind of uh, appreciating if you uh, send a tweet out or uh, rate us on iTunes. You know what else you can do What's if you want to support this show? What's that? You can buy an Atavist story. Yeah. Yes, you can. Do we have a new one? You can buy the What's latest new? Atavist What's story. New? You can buy it at atavist.com. It's by Brooke Jarvis, and it's called When We Are Called to Part. She once worked on the last leper colony in the United States in Molokai, and she goes back to see what's happening there now. It's a great story. Our sponsor this week is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. They do really good work there. I always notice sites that are Squarespace. Thank you, Squarespace. Also this week... Tiny letter. You guys, tiny letter. Classic. Simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at MailChimp. We have the best sponsors. Yeah, so true. Hey, Jason Vigoni. Hey, Max. Thanks for coming, man. You came all the way up from Philly. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. Uh, well, we have all kinds of like uh, great things to talk about, but we were just talking about a story you wrote for GQ in 2010. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, called The Dirtiest Player, which is about Marvin Harrison. Um, and that story is one of the inspirations for our website. It's one of the first stories we ever posted on Longform. Seriously? Yeah. And uh, it was 
one of the stories that was like people how did not like so many people didn't read this story and it was one of the things i was like we gotta just we gotta find a place to just put all this stuff in one place and uh and that one in particular actually my friend charlie a friend of mine from high school or college uh sent me that story and was like i never read any of this shit but this is amazing Oh wow! Yeah, that's awesome. I'm I'm uh, I'm honored. Man. So <laughs> part of the reason I was really excited to talk to you because that story is fucking crazy. Well, we're closing a loop. Yes, yes. Here it is. Finally, it came out almost four years ago now. Yeah, yeah. It was it's kind of, you know, I was going to say it was like one of those stories that fell through the cracks uh, at the time in the papers. Yeah. You know, I, well, why don't you just give us a quick like uh, preamble about it, a synopsis? Sure. So I, I read the story for the for the first time like recently for the first time in years so I don't remember it quite as well as I as I used to but uh, the basic the basic tale is that Marvin Harrison um, eight-time Pro Bowl wide receiver with the Indianapolis Colts uh, is involved in a shooting in a in a rough part of Philadelphia and uh, he is uh, <laughs> he is uh, kind of in a jam about it nobody really knows what happened uh, the cops have one story uh, Marvin Harrison and his lawyer have another story um, a year later, one of the people who was a witness to the shooting is is himself killed. Yeah, and these these so killed the, like two blocks from Marvin Harrison's car wash. Uh, yeah, a couple of blocks from uh, from the car wash and from the bar that he owned, right. Playmakers in um, in Philly. So so there are these kind of twin stories in the papers, and I remember having seen them and read them and, and thought, you know, that's kind of strange. Yeah. Um, but I think this is a case, it, it, it wasn't so much that the story fell through the cracks because all of the pieces were out there laying around. Right. It was more that, I think it, I think it took someone to kind of pick up the pieces and, and string them together into a, into a narrative, you know, a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. I, I mean, it's wild to me because you would think like, okay, so if there were two like quasi-related shootings in Philadelphia, uh, you know, a year apart, I could see that being a story that kind of like slips through the cracks but when they involve like a hall of fame football player it's i how was this not a huge like how is this not a huge story that was the reaction that was like that email that my friend sent me about the piece and that was my reaction when i read it when it came out in 2010 was just like how has this not been a huge story you know like this guy was quite possibly at the very least involved in like a shootout and a murder well it, it was a big deal it was a big deal it was you know it was in it was in the philly press for a while yeah but um i think the problem was that the da didn't want to do anything with it so the da lynn abraham who had a reputation for uh you know being tough on punks she called them <laughs> punks she was one of those you know she was uh, uh you know uh, elderly woman uh, gray hair uh very hard yeah uh, very tough and uh, and she held a press conference and said, "We're not going to we're not going to press charges because it's impossible to untangle the conflicting witness accounts in this case." And it became, I think, an instance then of, of journalism kind of doing better than the, what the DA could do, right? Uh, because her argument was essentially that the witness uh, accounts were were so tangled that you could never you could never really find out the truth. But you know, talking to some of the witnesses. Um, and talking to the police, it, w- it really was clear that, you know, there was a version of events that was basically a consensus version of events. Right. There's a thing that it is quite tangled. And the, and the witnesses, including one of the, the guys who got shot, they, they uh, are not like entirely reputable characters on their own. Right. Like they're, they're uh, you know, they have gotten into trouble themselves. And there's a point in that story where you kind of like turn to the reader almost and you're like just so we're clear like these guys have their own rap sheets 
it's very it's very like sort of plain straight ahead storytelling and it's interesting to hear you like point to that being the the thing that the DA couldn't get around that like there was all this muddledness and I feel like you have a way in this story and in a bunch of other stories of kind of like just going right after the muddledness like just trying to explain what's like weird or counterintuitive or tricky or whatever in sort of the like the plainest language that you can Oh, thanks. Is yeah. that an accurate? Yeah, no. The, the, my favorite, my favorite part of the story is actually probably the graph that you're talking about, where I, where I basically say everybody's a piece of shit. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like everybody, and and the, that's how the cops said it. You know, at, they said, "Look, everybody in this in this story is a piece of shit. Right. Uh, all the witnesses are a piece of shit. <laughs> it's just that there is one person who is the least piece of shit. Yeah, the least shitty, the least piece of shit. And that was yeah. Robert Nixon. That was the guy who was uh, one of the witnesses to the shooting, and from whose perspective I tell the the lead of the story. Um, and they found him to be the least piece of shit. So he was—he was the most credible guy, and he was the one who had a, a bullet in his back, uh, allegedly from from uh, Marvin Harrison's gun. Were you nervous going after Marvin Harrison, trying to tell this story about how he was maybe implicated in this thing? Was it like, uh, how'd you go about it? I guess. Yeah. So I, I basically I got an email from an editor I trust at GQ, a really good guy named uh, Brendan Vaughn, and he uh, he pointed me to one of the stories in the newspaper and said, hey, "There may be something here." Yeah, you were like the guy in Philly. Uh, yeah, I was the guy in Philly, right? right. Uh, so he knew that I was the guy in Philly, and he's like, "Could you go check this out?" Uh, and our idea was that we would give it two weeks. You know, we would we would report for two weeks and see what we came up with. And if there was a story uh, that was reportable for GQ, we'd go forward. If there wasn't, we would uh, we would just bag it. And uh, I remember there was a point where I was in the Philadelphia Free Library, like going through microfiche, uh, which, is, which is so horrible. I was just in there for hours going through these old newspapers. I was trying to find some piece of evidence that would establish um, uh, the provenance of Marvin Harrison's birth father. Because right. there was this kind of, there was this kind of, um, there was this space around Marvin Harrison's birth father and all of the profiles that had been written about him in Sports Illustrated. He's a famous football player, so you can go back and you can read all of the clips. And you can read everything that's ever been written about him. And no, nobody ever talks about his birth father. Mm-hmm. It's always uh, just about his mother. And you start to sense that there's this, this kind of space. Yeah. Um, he also had an adult uh, mentor who had, had kind of been protecting him. And, and there were a couple of comments about how this mentor had been protecting him from some elements in his past. Uh, so I, I was trying to track down who his uh, birth father was. And I, I eventually found um, a clip about his birth father's death which I correlated with some uh, court records. And that gave me the whole uh, entree into Marvin Harrison's family history, which is right. this incredibly violent history. He had two uh, brothers who were also... Um, half-brothers. You know, half-brothers yeah. who were also violent uh, criminals. Uh, one of them was um, allegedly an enforcer with the, uh, with the mafia, the Philadelphia mafia. And uh, the other one had, uh, had been playing in a youth basketball game uh, he was subbed out. He was up, he was upset about it, and uh, he rode off on a bike. He came back with a Tech Nine and uh, started shooting. That's that's Marvin Harrison's yeah, that's uh, what, family. It's one way to handle getting taken out of a game. Yeah, yeah. What was the aftermath? Like, what happened after it came out? So, um, so there was there was there was quite a bit of attention, and um, I think there was a general feeling of uh, surprise and shock that he that no charges had been uh, brought against him. Um, the DA, the new DA, uh, Seth Williams, said that he was going to look into the charges again. Um, and I waited for him to do that, and he never did. So essentially, um, there, was a, there was a civil suit that had been filed by uh, Robert Nixon, the guy who had been shot. 
and that civil suit settled. Uh, I and I think I think it settled with a confidentiality agreement. Mm-hmm. So we're probably never going to know. Uh, wow, we're never going to know. I, and he'll and he'll never. He's going to he's going to get you know he's going to be a first ballot uh, NFL yeah Hall of Famer, no question for sure. And you never heard from him. You never saw him. You haven't seen him since. No. Wow. Wild. <laughs> so, Jason, there's, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about now that we've talked about Marvin Harrison, which is the thing that I was really <laughs> super excited to talk to you about. But um, there are a couple other things that I'm interested in talking about. And one is that um, you're writing for like a whole bunch of places at this point. And, and I'm interested in sort of how you're balancing that like kind of freelance life. A lot of the people we've talked to, especially lately, have been on staff somewhere. And it seems like uh, you're kind of like doing your thing in a whole bunch of different places. And I'm also interested as part of that is sort of like the finances of how you do that and sure. how, how money works. And how do you make this. a living? Yeah. Can you, you really could, make a living? If you could just, if you could just put everyone who's listening, if you could just put their mind at ease and tell everyone that it's totally fine and you could totally make oh, a living. Oh, it's so easy. That'd be great. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about that too, but I think we should talk about first you just, this this month you just put out a book. I did. You are you are uh, a, now a two time book author. Yes. yes. How, all right. Well, the book's called Ingenious. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can give us like the uh, the brief description of the book. Sure. It's uh it's about a bunch of people who are making things. It's about sort of a quest to make something that matters, something that's going to make a difference. Uh, well, they're we, all just making the same thing though, right? <laughs> they're making cars. It's about a ten million dollar competition to create the super efficient car of the future called the Automotive X Prize, um, and I was following a bunch of teams who were uh, not huge automakers, but little guys with big ideas, essentially. Yeah. And uh, I was with them when in the in the build phase when they were making the cars, and then I was with them on the track when they were racing the cars against each other on a, on a NASCAR track in rural Michigan. And it wasn't, like, born out of an article, right? No, no. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was born out of me living in Philadelphia. And uh, reading a newspaper article a bunch of, about a bunch of high school kids who make super efficient hybrid cars, uh, and I went over to see their garage, and their garage was uh, like something straight out of the '50s, you know, uh, all sorts of old machines and like old dusty racks of parts. Uh, but then, but then they were making these original hybrid cars of totally unique design. I remember one of the cars when I went over there; uh, the hybrid drive was up on. Uh, a bench, and it looked like a piece of outsider art. It had a, uh, <laughs> it was built around a uh, Harley Davidson V-twin engine, and an electric motor. Uh, a Harley Davidson, as far as I can tell, has never been uh, used as the internal combustion engine part of a hybrid. It was like it was put into a Ford Focus. It was like the loudest Ford Focus in existence. It growled like a Harley. Are you a car guy? You're talking like a car guy. Yeah. But are I'm, you only a car guy because of this book? I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm. I'm a fraud. <laughs> um, you're. You're doing a great car guy impression, but. If you weren't a car guy, what what about that? What about that newspaper story drew you? Like, do you are you following up on like stories in the daily all the time? Yeah. Are so you- I, so I guess I mean I'm I'm I really am am not a car guy. Like I um when I was when I was reporting this book, I I was driving a uh, Honda Accord with 120,000 miles on it and a busted front fender. You know, <laughs> and when I when I turn the key in the car, I just expect it to work. I don't right. uh, have any patience for radical or crazy engineering. I just want it to work. But um, there was something about uh, the state of America in 2010 that that made this contest resonate with me. You know, it, it was it was a pretty rough time, um, economic depression. The banks had been bailed out, General Motors and Chrysler had failed, and it just seemed like kind of all of the big guys in American you know society had let us down. All of the elites, and uh, here was a contest that was explicitly looking to the little guy and, and saying, you know, we don't care what you've done before or, right. or how much money you have in your pocket. 
if you solve this problem, you win the money. <laughs> and there was just something so optimistic and hopeful and cool about yeah. that to me. Well, and, and the people who, who would sort of sacrifice in the way that the characters in your book sacrifice to try and get it to happen are also incredibly optimistic, hopeful people. Yeah, well, they, they really had their backs against the wall in a, in, a, in a dark economic time. You know, they were maxing out credit cards and, uh, you know, putting their financial future at risk, putting even their marriages at risk. And, and they were doing it because they were trying to make something that was important, something that mattered. So yeah. let's, go, let's go back just to the, the sort of genesis of the thing, because I'm, I'm interested in that. I feel like it might be helpful for people as they're trying to decide, like, sure. is this going to be a magazine article? Is this going to be, you know, a Kindle single is this a book, you know, ha like, so you go and, and you follow up on that newspaper story and, and when are you like, okay, this is, this is something I'm going to spend four years of my life on. So the, the full story is that I had, I had sold a book that was a completely different book. Uh, <laughs> this is like, this is like, I guess the business side of, of yeah. it, but, um, I had sold a book about a malaria vaccine. I was going to write about a, uh, a group of scientists who were trying to make a malaria vaccine to save a million people a year. Um, and I had negotiated access to this group of scientists, and, and then uh, discussions kind of broke down uh, about access, and access became harder and harder to get. Oh, wow. And so I had to back out of the project. So uh, my publisher uh, quite kindly gave me four months to find another idea <laughs> instead of just pulling the whole, the whole thing. So I was really scrambling. I was looking for an idea. And, uh, um, did you I, try out any others? I did. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what they are because <laughs> uh, they were... They were uh, they were not promising. Oh, you're uh, not going to tell me because not because you're going to go do them, but because they no, they good. just they just weren't good ideas. Um, and so, uh, so I found this I found this team, and it kind of it kind of ended up opening opening up into this larger world, and it and it kept on getting bigger and bigger. It wasn't just this team of you know kids from Philadelphia who were making hybrid cars. There were hundreds of other teams that were trying to win this contest, right. and, and a couple of them were really fascinating. And when and when I met, when it clicked for me actually is when I met this guy named Oliver Kuttner. Uh, Oliver Kuttner is this fiery uh, German, uh, very tall, uh, kind of physically domineering. And uh, I went to visit his shop in Lynchburg, Virginia. He had taken over a, uh, a Dickies jeans factory and built a little uh, car shop on the floor. And he asked me to hold on my hand, and he put a little piece of metal in my hand. And I looked down at my hand, and I'm holding a lug nut. And lug nut is like the most humble part of a car. It's like you, it holds the wheel onto the car. And I look up at Oliver, and, and he's just grinning at me. He's like waiting for me to get it. And I, I didn't get it then. Uh, but I came to understand about Oliver is that the lug nut was a very light lug nut. It was a lug nut that was three to ten times as light as a normal lug nut. Uh, and what he wanted me to understand was that he was so insane about saving weight on a car that he would even re-engineer the humble lug nut to do it. Um, his idea for a car to win the X Prize was a car that was a very light car. He actually called it that, the very light car. Mm -hmm. It was so light you could push it across the floor with your thumb. And it was so light that it, you know, it could get incredible efficiencies even while using a very small internal combustion engine. Uh, Henry Ford once said, the most beautiful things in the world are those from which all excess weight has been eliminated. And Oliver believed it's that. It's a good with, editing uh, tip. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's broadly applicable, I think. And uh, Oliver promised to share his vision of the future with me in, uh, in, in as much detail as I wanted to see it. And I think it's a vision of the future that makes sense. You know, he was, he was trying to design a car for a warming world, a world where raw materials are scarcer and cost more money, yeah. and a world where people have less money to spend. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor. It's Squarespace. 
Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. We've told you about them before. Here's the thing with Squarespace, right? They've got a whole bunch of things that make them really nice. They've got 24-7 support. You can email them if you're having a problem. They'll help you out. They've got all of their design works on cell phones and tablets, any cell phone, any tablet, responsive design. Uh, You don't have to worry about that. They also just released a bunch of apps that make it really easy to manage your site from your phone or your iPad. You can upload stuff. You can check your stats. All super simple, super easy. But here's the thing. The real reason you want to use Squarespace is because you have to build a website. You got to do it for yourself. You got to do it for your business. I don't know. You're getting married or something. Squarespace will allow you to put up a really professional looking website really quickly. You don't have to know a lick of code. My dad could do this if he needed to do All you do, log on, pick a template, start moving things around, dragging and dropping, putting in your titles. All of a sudden, you got a website in no time, and it looks pro. Like It looks like something a web developer would do, and it looks that way because they've got a bunch of really good designers, (laughs) really good web developers who have done it for you. Uh, Another nice thing about Squarespace, it doesn't cost anything to try it. So go check it out, squarespace.com. If you do upgrade, and chances are you will because it is that easy, use the code LONGFORM12, you'll get 10% off. It's a pretty good deal, and uh, it helps us too if you use the code. So go check it out. Use that code, LONGFORM12. Uh, and thanks very much to Squarespace for continuing to sponsor the show. Okay, back to Jason. And now, so you're finding these people who have this sort of, sort of wonderful, hopeful vision for where we can get with this stuff. How much did their chances factor into who you decided to really spend time with for the book? Because, yeah. like, I, you know, you you spent you just told me you told me before that it took you four years. You were working on the book for mm-hmm. four years, so it's like if you're going to invest that much time, you really want someone who's like there at the end, maybe yeah. has a chance to win, right? You need that like climactic finish. Yeah, that's a great question. That that was the mercenary part of it was trying to pick somebody who was going to win and yeah. last. So so you're also like uh, you're like a reporter reporting on it, but you're also like betting on it. Yeah, of. I was like handicapping it. Yeah. I'm like yeah. So so I basically I picked I wanted to pick four teams. And I picked the West Philly kids because they were close to me and also because they had um, they had actually beaten MIT in previous fuel efficiency competitions. So I felt like they had the track record and they, yeah. they were going to make it pretty far. I picked Oliver Kutner and Edison too just because I, I thought Oliver was so insane that he would, he would stop at nothing to win. He would, <laughs> he, would, he would literally spend all of his money down to nothing and imperil his entire life to, yeah. to win this contest. He was that consumed by it. So I'm like, I'm going to follow that guy and see what happens. And then um, I followed a team called Aptera Motors, a startup in California, because they had the most uh, venture capital. They had yeah, they were t- kind of like the traditional, like uh, they're like the Yankees. The, yeah, right. Yeah. They, of this contest, they were yeah. the Yankees. It, compared to the big automakers, they're still you know tiny, sure. tiny, sure. tiny AAA team. But but they had twenty four million dollars, which was way more than anybody else had. And uh, and the fourth team I picked because honestly, I just thought they were a good human interest story. This was uh, this was a guy, a thirty nine year old dude in central Illinois who set out to build an electric car in his barn <laughs> by hand. Literally, he literally went to a, um, a uh, uh, scrapyard, got lengths of steel, melted them in a wood-burning stove, and f- bent the steel around plywood forms to make the arched rib of the car's skeleton. Then he welded them together by hand. You, know, you see, uh, you see uh, robots welding things in car commercials. This car was welded by a, one dude. Uh, I thought it was going to snap like you know one of the welds would snap like a chicken bone at you know seventy miles an hour. I thought he was, I thought he was, I thought he was crazy. But yeah. um, reading that part of the book, I was like even more embarrassed for how terrible I am at like putting up a shelf. 
Yeah, no, this, no, they they made the entire car by hand. I didn't see. I'm again, I'm not a car guy. I didn't know you could make a car like this. They 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 welded it together, then they put uh, parts that they salvaged from scrap. And he does it with his wife. He did it with his wife and with his uh, father and brother and his friends. Uh, initially on weekends, but eventually it totally he was taking time off of work to work on the car. This is the kind of contest that just consumed people. Yeah, I guess I'm interested in how you balanced this larger project. I mean, you you know, over the last four years, you've turned out I don't know how many dozens of magazine stories. How are you balancing this sort of like the book project with all the other stuff that you had to get done? Like, was that operating on the margins of the rest of your life, or was it the other way around? So I think I was I was trying. There were some times when I was working intensely on the book and trying to fit magazine stuff around it, uh, and then there were some times when I just had to work on magazine stories to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book was really the you know the shining, <laughs> the shining goal. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I, I tried to do my best with the, with the magazine work, uh, but a lot of a lot of the time it was it was tough. Um, it was tough, but you can't work on a book um, all of the time. There are, are sort of intense periods and fallow periods. So, mm-hmm. so it was possible to um, it was possible to mix. Is it more stressful during the like uh, intense periods or the uh, like fallow periods? Oh man, um, I get antsy when I don't have work. When I don't have something that's due. Yeah, uh, it's just a, I think it's just a natural result of of having done this for you know a couple of years now. Is that uh, when there's no deadline, I I start to, I start to look for something. Right. And sometimes you know it's not uh, writing isn't um, writing isn't like a, a zero sum thing. I mean sometimes if you have uh, multiple projects, you know one can kind of heat up the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's not that it's not that one is taking time away from the other one. It's that thinking about one can distract you in a, in an interesting or useful way. Right. You get some momentum going on one and starts feeding right. into the other. Yeah. How many projects are you working on at once? I write about pot now. <laughs> You're on the pot beat? I'm on the pot beat. The yeah. pot beat, I got to tell you, man, the pot beat is such a good beat. I like <laughs> someone is going to do the great like uh someone's going to do the verge for weed and it's yeah. going to be such a good website. Yeah. And and it, and it'll it'll be a monster too. Yeah, it's going to kill it. Someone's going to do it. I I'm I'm sad that I'm not going to do it. I should you, really you do could, it. You could do it. It'd I should be a just subsidiary. Quit. Yeah, I think I'd have to quit everything. To do the weed site well, you really have to quit everything. Yeah. But someone should do the weed site. You know, it's a good. It's a. It would be a good business. I mean, the the weed people. I, the I, advertising in the weed. The advertising for the weed site is about to like go completely insane. Oh, you yeah. could do product reviews. You know. Yeah. And then you do like some news stuff and some feature stuff. You can do video. No, High Times is adding pages. You know, in in in, yeah. a, in, a, in an environment yeah. where a lot of magazines are cutting them. High, yeah. high, I just wrote a piece for uh, the New Republic about how High Times is the most influential magazine of our of our time. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, such a slaty headline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it was a very slate pitch article, but um, but yeah, I mean the pot, the pot people. I wrote a pot story for uh, Grantland, and um, yeah. again, I don't know a ton about pot. I wrote it a lot, uh, a lot, a lot, so I could teach myself about it. Well, t- well let's talk about that story because that, that's, that's also on my list. It's called the Willy Wonka of Pot, and it's got about this guy named DJ Short, and uh, DJ Short is like one of the great cannabis growers of our time. Yeah, if there was a weed hall of fame, he'd be in the weed hall. Well, of fame. he is in he is in the he is in the ganja hall of fame. He's in the 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 uh, high times uh, seed bank hall of fame. Oh right, for, the seed bank his, hall of fame. for his arsenal of great ganja genetics was there for us. <laughs> he actually is yeah. in the hall of fame. Yes, yeah, so you went out and found this guy. No one had ever profiled him before. No, he's a mysterious figure, uh, a long sort of semi-anonymous figure. Uh, nobody nobody had known where he lived, uh, what he did, what he cared about, um, where his ideas came from. He had published a, a short book uh, in 2003 called Cultivating Exceptional Cannabis, An Expert uh, uh, Breeder Shares His Secrets. 
but it wasn't you know highly in in high circulation or anything. It's not a not a super well known book. Although it it is in your words in that story, it is excruciatingly well written. It's irritatingly well written. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is. He is he's a writer. I mean that that's really what drew me into DJ Short is I recognized in him kind of a kindred, you know, I think a kindred spirit. And and talking to him, I mean, he's incredibly well-read, incredibly literate. I mean, he was talking about Pynchon and Jonathan Swift and stuff, and he's like this aging hippie guy. Yeah. And he had, he had written a, uh, he'd also written a, like a 200,000 word memoir of his time, uh, fighting fires in Oregon on a, on a wood, uh, woodland firefighting crew. And it was like, it was called zero fire. And it was like, he, he had executed this 200,000 word memoir. And I was just in awe of that. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, but yeah, I, I hung out with DJ short. I think he, I got lucky in the sense that um, I, I sense that he might be a good character, a good way to explain how, um, you know, where where the pot world is right now is sort of perched on the edge of legitimacy. Yeah, it was funny. There's a, this great moment in that story where you quote directly from like a cease and desist letter that he put out. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like uh, you are illegally uh, stealing my illegal goods. Right. Yeah. I yeah. cannot enforce this at all, but like uh, maybe I will be able to soon. <laughs> is that the, it's like the end of that that's like the end of the cease and desist is like at some point in the near future I think I will be able to punish you for this exactly he's, yeah. he's laying down his marker it's right on the verge it's right it's like right there where it's about to and his Willy Wonka too was very interested in legalese if you remember he had, <laughs> right. he had the long legal scroll you know trying to protect his ideas so you really on the weed beat uh no no but I, there was definitely a moment where I was like you know, uh, this re- this represents a possible future for me or a timeline. You know, I, yeah. could, I could just be the guy who writes about weed now and like smokes weed and yeah. maybe, Do you maybe smoke I, a lot of weed. Maybe I could be happy now. You know, like maybe, maybe this is how I'll be happy. I'll just write about weed and smoke weed and be happy, and that would that would represent actually some sort of some sort of renegade. Uh, sounds like stance. fun. Man. I know it sounds like I, I don't smoke weed actually, uh, but well, um, I was I was interested in that. I was trying to figure out for the first like two thirds of that story whether you smoked a ton of weed or not, and and then there's a moment in the story where you're like and then he and I smoked weed yeah well I you know I did it for the story <laughs> I don't uh, I took a hit uh, I took a hit with him uh, from a bowl but uh, you know I've, sm- I've smoked weed a handful of times in my life I would say but yeah. uh, you know it's not like a like I don't have any weed at home right now yeah you know? I smoked a lot of weed when I was a young man and now I can't do it I get too anxious but uh, I think that it, it that's even that's another sign that you should be on the weed beat I think like the great the great weed reporter is not going to smoke weed yeah theory yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right because you have to come to it with some sense of distance and abstraction. You know, the same way um, like uh, Jean Marie Laskus writes about football. You know, yeah. Uh, from from sort of there's a there's like a naive standpoint. You know who'd be a great weed reporter? Jean Marie Laskus. Yes, she would be amazing. Jean Marie, if you're listening, go. We'll get her on it. Go get on this weed beat because Jason won't do it for some reason. <laughs> um, so, all right, right now you are a contributing editor at Wired. Right. You are, do you have a title at Philly, Mag? Uh, writer at large. You're a writer at large. That's such a good title. I know. Writer I, like at large. I was an editor at large once and it was really fun. Sweet. I really like telling people I was something at large. <laughs> um, okay, so you're, you're a writer at large from Philly Mag. Does that mean they give you a check every month or just when you write stories? Um, yeah, I have it arranged so that uh, they give me a stipend uh, every month. I, I, I agree in the beginning of the year to write a certain number of stories for them, a certain right. amount of words, and I, I get this. I have it arranged as a stipend so that I have some level of predictability, and it replicates kind of the predictability of a salary. Because the thing about freelancing is, you know, I make I make more than I I made on staff when I was on staff at magazines, but the the money is more unpredictable. Right. Uh, it, it comes at, at at times where it's it's hard to figure out. You know, uh, it's hard it's hard to plan sometimes. 
And being a contributing editor at Wired, do you get paid every month? I do, yeah. Well, that's nice. So you're getting checks from two places. Yes. I mean, I do the, I do the work. Uh, <laughs> I do the work. It's not... It, it, the, the whole thing, it seems... It's, it's perched right on the edge of sustainability, you know? It's... it's, it's um, you know, and I and I have I have some book income, uh, uh-huh. not much, but so I mean, I, I definitely do fantasize sometimes about having like a, having a real job and a salary and stuff, and you know, taxes taxes uh, vex me. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm organized as a as a corporation so that I can protect myself in case someone were to sue me. Um, but that means that my my taxes aren't withheld. You know, I have to. Uh, yeah. How often do you do stories because you know an editor will take them? And how often do you t- do stories because they're like the story you really want to do? The Marvin Harrison story wasn't a story that I was like that into originally. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just a mercenary thing. I thought, you know, I, I live in Philly. <laughs> I should look into this. Yeah. And, um, but I, I actually kind of I actually kind of like doing it that way. I like not caring about the story at first and then finding a way to care about it. Oh, that's interesting. Um it it helps like guide your reporting and storytelling and such. It, it helps me. Um, there's usually a moment where where I where I click into it where I'm like, okay, um, now I feel like I know something that somebody else doesn't know, or now I feel like I can tell a story in a different way, um, and then I become interested in it, and then and then I'm and then my my passion is generating the forward momentum instead of you know in editors, and I, I I like I like coming to stories like that for some reason. I'm not I'm not really sure why. Is there is there a particular kind of story that you're drawn to? Are there, like, is there a type of story you like to tell? You know, my wife, uh, I, I, was, I was getting ready to give a talk about my book, um, and I was practicing it with my wife, and she said, you know, you should start out by saying, these people in, in the book are all little guys with big ideas. And she said, that's what you write about most of the time, right? And I said, you know, uh, that's exactly it. You yeah. know, like, I, I, my, my life made sense to me in that moment, you know, in, in a way that, uh, that it, it hadn't. Uh, but I think I think that's what I like. I like little guys with big ideas. Why are you drawn to little guys with big ideas? Are you a little guy with big ideas? I don't. I don't know. It could be. Um, it could be. I mean, I, I write about a lot of strivers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my uh, my sister is a striver. She's uh, two years younger than me. She's a professional ballet dancer with the Richmond Ballet. Oh no shit! Yeah, she's like a professional ballerina. And uh, she's like way more intense than me. I'm um, I'm I'm pretty intense. She's she's ridiculously intense. I mean, growing up with her, uh, you know, I would be watching cartoons after school and like eating cereal, and she would be doing Pilates stretches, you know, for hours and hours. I mean, just her foot. I mean, if you look at her foot, it's it's disgusting. I mean, her foot is like it's like a weapon of war. I mean, that's it, like a that's like actually like becoming like the center fielder for the Boston Red Sox, becoming a professional ballerina. Yeah. That's like the that's like the the like she made it. Totally, and, you know, she's at she's in the top one one percent. Wow. The thing about this business is that you know all the you, you can all the rewards are are in the in the top you know one percent. So you have to try to get there. If you think that you can't get there, um, you know it's it's tough. You're talking about being a writer now. I think being a writer. I think yeah. I think increasingly, increasingly, the rewards are are all at the top. Um, but you know, or at least doing it, at least being a freelancer. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, what do you What do you actually mean when you say the top? Are you, are you talking just about like pay, or do you think that the people who are getting paid like that are the best? Um. Yeah. I. I do. Um. 
I mean, I, I, I just published a book. I'm a guy who just published. I'm like, I'm a couple weeks out from publishing a book. Yeah. So uh, that's an interesting time uh, in, in a writer's life. Uh, How often are you looking at that Amazon page a day? Oh man, I, I told myself I wasn't going to look at it, and I I broke that I, I broke that promise on day three. Oh wow, and, you stayed three days. That's pretty. Yeah, impressive. I was I was pretty proud of myself actually, and yeah. and uh, you know I've gone a couple of days since without without looking at it, but. Um, you know, it's, it's it's the first couple of days are very exciting. You know, everybody, everybody, all your friends are coming through for you. They're tweeting, tweeting about it and helping you. And there's this kind of rush of social media excitement. And, you know, the first reviews come out and they're good. And, and your, you know, your editors are emailing you the reviews and everybody is really happy. And then and then there are a couple of days like day five, day six, where where it's kind of died down. Nothing is really nothing is really happening. And you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen. You're like something please happen and right. and there was there was a day there was a day there was a pretty dark day where i was where uh, where i was looking at my amazon ranking and it was just plummeting and the 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 thing about this is that you know it's not a secret to anybody how well my book is selling you can just go to amazon and, and look we'll at the put ranking. it in the show notes yeah right uh thanks <laughs> <laughs> so um so i was i was going to amazon and looking at the ranking i was just like i just felt like i was i was looking at some of the other books that were selling and i just felt like i was you know, in this vast stadium and, and raising my hand and I was being like, hey, I'm Jason. I published this book. You know, I, it's about cars and inventors and I, I think you'll like it. And somebody was like, hey, quiet down. You know, we want to hear about the duck, the fucking duck dynasty guy. <laughs> you know, like we want to hear, we want to hear from Cy, the duck dynasty <laughs> uncle, you know, or, or like we want to hear from Doris Kearns Goodwin who wrote, you know, a book about uh, Teddy, Rose, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the, the 500th book about Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> I, like, I, I don't think people are even reading that, reading that book. I think they buy it as gifts, you know, right. like, like how can I get somebody to buy my book? as as a gift that they won't even read. I mean that's like that's some kind of crazy crazy mojo that I I don't quite understand. And then and then there was like a day where I was like or a morning where I was like incensed at Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, the astronaut, which just shows you how deranged you can get. <laughs> because Chris Hadfield is like one of the greatest human beings alive, right? I mean, Chris Hadfield, he you know, he goes to the International Space Station and he's like he's like uh, taking pictures of the Earth and he's writing these incredibly poetic uh, things about them and he's sharing the majesty and wonder of of space with a new generation in this incredibly generous way. And, uh, you and know, like, fuck that guy. Yeah. I was like, I was like, and, he, and he's, and he's like, uh, and he's like, uh, singing a David Bowie song in zero gravity and doing all these science experiments. And, 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 uh, and I'm like, dude, I can't do any of that. I can't be an astronaut. You know, I can't, I can't grow like a full bushy mustache, manly mustache like you have. I can't sing like you can. The book thing is my thing. This is what I can do. And you're even beating me at that. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, um, and uh, but then but then but then you you know then you realize that um, you know you really are lucky to be able to do this and you know not a lot of people get to do it and good thing good things and then a couple of good things happen and it it pulls you out of it and you realize you know this is uh, this is a cool life this is a cool way to make a living. How often do you go through that roller coaster? <laughs> Does that have is that like a like a weekly occurrence? It you know it it recurs it recurs a little bit. I mean it, it is hard to be. It is hard to be to feel like, um, well, you're just kind of like out there naked in, in being valued by the market right. in a way that you usually aren't when you're writing for magazines, right? When you're writing for a magazine, the magazine is doing all the selling and the advertising, and you don't have to. If it, you don't if have it to, doesn't go well, you can blame. If the it doesn't magazine. go well. It's not your fault. You know, you're not the face of it. You're not the vessel. 
here you're the face of it, you're the vessel. And so it feels very, it's, it's kind of, it is kind of a vulnerable feeling being, being out there, just, just having this value placed on you. And, um, so it, so it does recur from time to time, but you know, I, I'm, I'm happy with the book. I, I think it represents the best of what I can do. I, I think it's really good. I'm proud of it. That's um, good, man. You should be proud of it. You know, I, I am, I'm happy to have it out in the world. I'm happy to give it to anybody and, and say, here, here's my work. Um, you know, and I think it, I, I think it, I think it, it, it will appeal to people who make things or want to make things or anybody who really has a dream of, um, you know, leaving a better mark on the world, or at least I hope it will. Yeah. I'm kind of a, inherently a pessimist, but so the, the, the book brought me out of that. Well, this is the thing that I'm, I'm interested in about you, man, because these stories, I wouldn't, you know, I read back all the stuff, like you write about this stuff that dreamers, optimism, hope, people who want to do huge things. Um, and it's, it is really optimistic, hopeful work right. that you do. But I have been following you on Twitter for like three years or four years or something. Right. And you that, see the bile and the darkness. The darkness, man. Like the, <laughs> the juxtaposition between uh, you as an author and you as a tweeter is is wild. It's huge. Yeah. Um, which, That's funny. Which, which is the real Jason? You know, I, I think part part of me became a journalist so that I would I would become less shy. It it, it brought me out of uh, a shell. You know, I, I wasn't able to before I became a journalist. I wasn't able to call somebody I didn't know on the phone and talk to them. Yeah. Um, you know, I worked in a, I worked in a newsroom and it just kind of beat that out of me. Where were you working in a newsroom? In the uh, Daily Collegian at Penn State. Right on. Yeah. And uh, before that, I mean, I stumbled into it by by accident. Really, I, my high school paper. I was. Um, I worked on the paper, but I wasn't really that into it. And then um, I happened to, I, I, I ate lunch with these guys uh, at a table who were just assholes. And uh, one of them would, every day he would go. Where'd you grow up? Uh, in uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania, like uh, horse country. And he would go to the um, lunch line, get tater tots, bring them back to the table, uh, put a bunch of tater tots in his mouth, take the mashed tater tots out of his mouth, form them into a ball, and throw them against the wall. <laughs> and it, it, the tater tots just stuck against the wall. Um, and like halfway through the year, there was just like this um, brown plaque. They never cleaned it, and I, I was it, I was just so disgusted by it. Um, but, the, but these were the guys you sat with. These were the guys I sat with at lunch. And uh, but the newspaper, the school newspaper, had its own little room up on the second floor, uh, like a like a little supply closet. And uh, if you worked on the paper and you were really into it, you could you could eat lunch up there. So I just I just I just ex- exited the lunchroom. I started eating lunch up in the supply closet of the newspaper, and uh, hang out with those people. And that's how I got really into the into the paper. You know, <laughs> didn't occur to you like go sit and eat lunch with somebody else, not like the tater you tot know, asshole. You're so stupid when you're in high school. <laughs> you don't understand all of the opportunities that are available to you. You know, it doesn't it just doesn't occur to you. That's a good origin story. That's so weird. So you went from there, and then you went and and you wrote for your college paper at Penn State. Yeah, I uh, I probably spent a lot more time at my college paper than I than I spent at uh, classes in some semesters. So when you left school, that you were like, "This is what I want to be doing." Yeah, I I um, I, I took a uh, a class in long form journalism from a guy who was actually now reading my book and sending me Facebook messages about errors in it, like small errors in it. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's awesome. Um, but uh, he was he was really influential. He he uh, introduced me for the first time to um, you know Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson and um, uh, a lot of those uh, kind of long form heroes, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I, I got out of school just wanting to write 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 long, and I think um, 
I had some friends who were trying to get internships at Time and Newsweek and stuff so they could write, um, you know, and they would be writing front of the book items and stuff and at a more prestigious place. And I, I chose instead to try to uh, write long at a less prestigious place. So I, I moved to um, Cincinnati, Ohio, not knowing anyone there. And I worked for a, a Cincinnati magazine, a city magazine. I had an amazing editor and mentor there, Kitty Morgan. And uh, I love the job. Did you move for the job? I moved for the job, yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't meet women there at all. I mean, there was no, this was before Facebook. It was before any sort of social network. It was just that all, all of the Cincinnati social networks were locked down. All, the, all those people already knew each other. And uh, I just, I couldn't meet anybody. So my personal life was totally miserable, but, I, but it was an Maybe amazing, that amazing job. Maybe might have made your work better. I think so. I yeah. think it did, yeah, because I, I spent a lot of time there. I had an experience like that in Tampa where I didn't really have any friends, and I was working on a newspaper and, and writing long stories, and uh, I, my work was definitely better because I was so like lonely and pathetic in the rest of my life. Yeah, there's something to it. And so where'd you go from Cincinnati? I, uh, I got a job in Philadelphia, and I kind of came home uh, to some extent. And um, yeah, I was hired by, hired by Larry Platt at Philadelphia Magazine. I was a staff writer from... Uh, 2003 to 2005 with, uh, with a lot of amazing people who, um, who you, you would know, uh, Sasha Eisenberg, Ben J. Wallace, uh, Vicky Glombaki, Bob Huber, um, who else was there? Uh, Chris McDougall. Yeah. Who wrote Born to Run. Sure. And this has like come up again and again uh, in these conversations is that first job you had where you were able to go to a smaller place and sort of like work out the kinks and get some chops. Yeah. What would be your advice for yourself then? Like if some, a young writer at Penn state came up to you and said, I'm spending all my time working on the newspaper. I'm not going to class. This is what I want to do. I want to write long stuff. What would you tell them to do? I would probably tell them to find a city magazine, uh, try to find an in at a city magazine. I mean, do you think those jobs still exist? I think so. Um, I mean, city and regional magazines are, are kind of, considered you know a, a stepchild uh, to some extent of the of the big national glossies but i think a lot of them do really amazing work and um you know it was it was a great place for me i mean i had my uh you know i tacked my tom juno stories up to the up to the cork board uh you know i i cut out my little picture of christopher hitchens in the trench coat the green trench coat from the vanity fair like looking to the side you know and kind of <laughs> looking over his shoulder and the picture of uh, joan didion you know smoking the cigarette it was like on my on my door i must have been so fucking obnoxious to everybody, <laughs> everybody else there I, I can't even believe they uh tolerated me but um but yeah it was it was it was a you know it was a great time so let's get back to the the uh, the two Jasons then, right? Yeah. So you're like you're writing this stuff that's just super optimistic, but then but then you're tweeting all the time, and you are a prolific tweeter, and a lot of it's pretty dark. <laughs> like what? Like what's dark? What do you remember that's dark? Well, I mean, I could call up your Twitter right now, but like I was in the last two days. Yeah, you've uh, gotten uh, quite mad at the. Uh, that Pando Daily oh, yeah. partnership yeah. with uh, Not Safe for Work, yeah, NSFW. Are you supposed to say NSFW? NSFW, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You didn't. You you were not happy about that. The last couple of days. The last couple of days, I guess, have been like a reversion that we that we were talking about into into kind of a a more pessimistic uh, uh, outlook on on uh, on stuff, I guess. And then today, GQ. Devin Friedman wrote a piece about Charlie LaDuff and you just blew it uh, up. Yeah. You're so mad about it. Yeah, I was really mad. Really yeah. mad momentarily, momentarily. Uh, yeah, I was because, um, I don't know. I just, sometimes I, I feel like I have kind of like a hater 
mentality <laughs> sometimes, and I don't know where it comes from, but it's like really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, and I th- maybe that's maybe that's why I try to find some of these optimistic um, subject matter to to bring me out of it. Well, I, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about the duff, but I'm yeah. interested in that that instinct to be like, I want to talk about how I don't like the duff. Yeah. You know, because like I my instinct. In, in in that situation is just to like like lean across the table and tell Aaron like fucking the duff right but not to broadcast it right you know and I guess I, I'm I'm interested in 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 where that comes from yeah I don't know is it, does it work out for you like like did <laughs> you know what I mean I don't know I'm like to, to, like to people that just think I'm an asshole yeah, yeah that's kind of what I'm asking like yeah. like you're a, a a wonderfully nice guy talking to you has been really fun I'm really glad we did this. On Twitter, occasionally, you're just like a fucking asshole. Yeah. Why? (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Don't you ever... Don't you ever get angry about something that is important to you and want to communicate it and and share your... share your feelings with other people? I mean... (laughs) Or are you you just afraid of repercussions? I'm probably pretty afraid of repercussions. I'm yeah. I'm like I'm not particularly conflict averse. I guess I just like yeah, I don't know. I that's not that's not my instinct, but it seems like it works. Like it seems maybe like maybe you get to a good place. Like maybe you're going like, to end up talking like, to I've, Charlie Ledef. I've probably got it coming. Like I've got it coming. I'm going to publish something and somebody that I've pissed off is going to like rip me. And I will des- I'll deserve it, you know. I'll but definitely w- Will you be able that. to brush it off? I guess that's the thing. Like will you be able will you if someone if you put up a story and people are like, God damn it, that fucking guy. Every time with that guy. Yeah. Like, will you be able to brush that off? Or you're, when you're sitting in your home office and that, like, comes across? No, I'll, probably be, I'll probably be stewing, you know, yeah. or uh, I would I would want to respond to it. I mean, I, uh, um, yeah, that's that's a good question. It's not something I've, I've obviously thought about really that deeply. Uh, <laughs> sorry sorry if we're going to a uh, no. un- unnecessarily over, over analytical place. No, it's, I, um... I don't know. I think I share a lot of stuff on Twitter that I that I love and like, and um, you know, I share. A lot, I feel like I share a lot of praise. Has it made your writing better? Yes. I feel like just having the having the um, the compulsion uh, is useful somehow, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure how. Interesting. Um, I have a couple more questions, then I'll let you. Sure. Go. Um, one question is: You've sort of always written about the media. And it's been a sort of like side beat for you, I feel like. Like the, you wrote about the Alt Weeklies in Philly at some point, and you just wrote that piece about High Times. Like mm-hmm. you're interested in the industry, not just working in the industry. Like uh, do you have fantasies of being like a, like a media reporter full time? Do you want to be like, do you want to be like doing David Carr's column at some point? No, no. Um, no, it, no, I've, I've, I guess I've always been, I had, I had a couple of media studies professors at Penn State that were, I guess, influential and, uh, and kind of, got me attuned to um, to media writing. I, I read uh, James Fowles' Breaking the News in college, which was a huge influence and, and uh, um, you know, uh, got, me, got me caring about how uh, media is presented and, and I guess made me believe that media criticism could be useful and, and important. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm less interested in it, in it now. I mean, I really, more, I, more and more, I just want to tell, tell stories and, um, and tell good stories and find good stories and and uh, and talk less about how they come together. I guess. 
are you are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic about the state of this stuff? Like how how do you how do you feel about where long form journalism is at at the at the moment? Uh, yeah, I feel hugely optimistic about it. Actually, um, you know, I. Uh, I, I tell people I get I get letters from younger writers sometimes asking asking for advice and I tell them that um, you know as long as they have a pitch then they can get a story anywhere I really feel that's that's true I mean don't you feel that's true if, if I do had... think we're I think it's a, a meritocracy in a way that it hasn't been before yeah I mean it's still the game is totally rigged but I do think that if you like write something great it'll probably get read yes and that probably wasn't true before. And and that that's been my experience with uh, with books too. I really feel like people at, at publishing houses are looking for new voices and are are very open, um, very open to to pitches from young writers that that work that are good. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, most of the time that I hear from editors at bigger magazines, that's like the real question. That's like the thing that maybe I could be helpful with is like who, who's a young writer that I haven't read yet. They're they're actively looking for those people. I think. Yeah. Maybe they always have been, but maybe it's just easier for them to get found now, I guess. I think, um, yeah, I think with long form, actually, not to suck up to you, but <laughs> I think long form has actually changed the economics of it. Um, long form and long reads have uh, made it possible for a story that isn't necessarily in the most prestigious magazine to get the kind of circulation that a story in a presti- only a story in a prestigious magazine would have gotten before. Um, you know, that's, like, that's nice to hear. I mean, I think that it really, it really has leveled the playing field and made it more democratic in that sense. Because, uh, I mean, to me, what matters when I uh, when I think about a story now is um, who is going to allow me to write the best version of this? Where am I going to get the best editing? Um, how can I make this story the best version of it that it can be? You know, I'm I'm pr- I'm probably thinking less about where it's where it's going to run because all that matters now is whether it gets sucked up into the long form funnel. You know, <laughs> and when it gets sucked up into the long form funnel, that's how it goes to heaven. You know, that's true. That's the truth. That re- it really has changed the way I think about things. Um, all right. Well, now I feel uh, more pressure. <laughs> um, you were saying earlier that like it, this stuff only really starts paying off when you're in like the top one percent of doing it. Yeah. Do you? Who who are you thinking of? Like who who whose career do you want to emulate? What kind of stories do you want to be doing? You know, ten years from now. Oh, I don't know. Um, I, it's so hard to see that far ahead, Max. It's uh, because it really is. It, re- <laughs> it really is so precarious. <laughs> uh, you know, my uh, uh, my wife uh, works in tech, and and she's um, she's she's great and and hugely supportive. So. Uh, you know, we have healthcare through her and everything. Without without that, I, I don't think I would I would be able to do it. But even even with that, um, you know, it's a it's a month to month or a, or a definitely a year to year thing. So I I really honestly I have no idea. I just want to keep on doing. It. I've always thought you know I, I'll keep on like my sister, who has continued to keep on doing it until she can't anymore. A dancer reaches a time when her body just breaks down, right? And my sister is is close to that point. There aren't any forty year old dancers. You know, she's thirty three. So I've always kind of imagined that trajectory for myself. There's there will be a point when maybe I can't do this anymore. But until then, I'm going to, you know, do it with uh, with all of my heart. Seems like a good place to end. Jason, thanks uh, thanks for coming all the way up, man. This was really fun. Oh, thank you, Max. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our fantastic editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern this week, Gavin Jenkins. Thanks so much to Jason Fagoni for taking the time. 
Uh, repay him. Go get that book. Ingenious. It will restore your faith in America, or at least restore your faith in uh, a handful of people in America. Uh, also, while you're out purchasing things to read, check out the new Atavis story. It's called When We Are Called to Part. It's by Brooke Jarvis. It too is great. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.